Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Yes, it is. And welcome back Thursday, March 31st, 2022. Just a note of warning with some of the themes I'm about to discuss. You may want to take a moment to have no young children listening. If that's impossible, you can always hear this later from our website at any time of your choosing. Okay. In our ongoing culture conf, I should like to plant another flag today, a bookmark, if you will, something to be aware of, something to look out for, something to be prepared for. Think of it this way. Conservatives are yahoos who want to ban books. This theme has been pretty popular on the left and pops up from them every few years. Banning books, banning art, calling us Bible thumpers or yahoos or Neanderthals. The Scopes trial is invoked. McCarthyism is invoked. Sometimes in the worst excesses of the left when they run out of analogies, even Kristallnacht is invoked. This has ever been with us, and many of you will remember the scene of such in Field of Dreams or perhaps the fight over whether public funds should endow a crucifix soaking in urine as art or a depiction of Mary soaking in feces. You saw some of this during the curriculum fights in Virginia last year and really all over the place right now with emanations and penumbras coming out of Florida and the contretemps there where the left has either fully misunderstood what's taking place there or is fully aware and wants to distract with straw man arguments about using the word gay, which is not what the legislation is about at all, but a convenient distraction and ignoratio elenchi to shift the actual argument to one that makes those of us who care about the brains and emotions of our children as anti-gay when we are not, and indeed when even some of the supporters of the legislation happen to be gay. So a marker. A cultural signal was sent yesterday from the state we are told, shapes so much of American culture, California. The governor there, Gavin Newsom, who I am guessing dreams each day of becoming the president of the United States or perhaps in mid-administration President Kamala Harris's vice president, he fired the first cultural shot. Yesterday, he tweeted a picture of himself reading a Toni Morrison novel with four other books on his table. The two you can see on the table, besides the Toni Morrison book, are to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, excuse me, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, and the other is 1984 by George Orwell. The message he tweeted, quote, reading some banned books to figure out what these states are so afraid of, close quote. We'll leave his errors with the English language in a tweet about literacy aside for now, but there's a lot in this tweet, and as I say, a lot I want us to be prepared for in a new onslaught of defamations sure to come our way. Let us begin with the point from Florida, denying the assignment of age-inappropriate books to children dealing with advanced sexual and gender themes is not banning. It is curriculum development. In a world the left wants us to be sensitive to under the guise of the new acronym, SEL, Social and Emotional Learning, you'd think the left would be on board with not hypersexualizing children for adult gender and sex wars, given every piece of social science research on the psychological and emotional harms that result from children being exposed to those themes at too young an age. 
boy, do they get it when it comes to playing cops and robbers or having toy guns. That children must not be exposed to. The true story of a boy named Penelope, recommended for pre-K audiences, should be standard fare, according to the left. Playing cowboy, or cops and robbers, or having toy guns, that's the unhealthy thing. But can we start with a basic point our postmodern and relativistic world has a hard time understanding? To Kill a Mockingbird and the story of two men sexually amusing themselves on a lawn and discovering their sexual abilities and prowess are not on the same par. Here, I must take us back to a teaching from Irving Kristol, either never learned or forgotten long ago. In an essay in the New York Times in 1971, he put it this way, quote, What reason is there to think that anyone was ever corrupted by a book? The question, oddly enough, is asked by the very same people who seem convinced that advertisements in magazines or displays of violence on television do indeed have the power to corrupt. It is also asked, incredibly enough and in all sincerity, by people, usually university professors and school teachers whose very lives provide all the answers one could want. After all, if you believe that no one was ever corrupted by a book, you have also to believe that no one was ever improved by a book or a play or a movie. You have to believe, in other words, that all art is morally trivial and that consequence, consequently all education is morally irrelevant. No one, not even university professors, really believe that. Close quote. I really think there's a volume of logic in that point and worth repeating part of it. If you believe that no one was ever corrupted by a book, you have also to believe that no one was ever improved by a book. You have to believe, in other words, that all art is morally trivial and that consequently all education is morally irrelevant. No one, not even university professors, really believes that. So if we can, on to banning books. To Kill a Mockingbird. Who's doing the banning of that book? Well, that's been the left. I can't speak to Toni Morrison's works very much, but I do know the book Governor Newsom is reading of hers in his picture, her most famous, is not usually the book of hers that does create controversy in curriculum debates. It's an entirely different and much lesser known book of hers. As for 1984, I don't know what Governor Newsom thinks he's scoring a point against or if he thinks he's scoring a point against the right by making it prominent. I will say I do look forward to his reading it and look forward to his report on it, as it could be the cause of his switching parties. My guess is, though, he will see 1984 not as a warning, but as a how-to manual. Not wanting a book in a certain grade in school or in a school library is not banning books. There are curriculum and textbooks debates all the time in school board after school board after school board around the country. Ever wonder why one textbook is chosen over another in a given school? Well, surprise, surprise, this is how that works. One is chosen for reasons having to do with reading levels, age appropriateness, comprehensibility, and a range of factors, while the majority of books offered are not chosen. Is it banning a book to prevent an elementary school library from having a book like Lawn Boy in it? May I read you a selection from that book? This is a book the left claims should be in schools and not banned. Quote, in fourth grade at a church at a church youth group meeting out in the bushes, I touched Doug Goebel's and he touched mine. In fact, 
There were even some mouths involved. Let me read you another passage, page 91. I won't do too much of this to you. Quote, what if I told you I touched another guy's? What if I told you I? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I can get through this. I was 10 years old, but it's true. I put Doug Goebbels in my mouth. I was in fourth grade. It was no big deal. He sucked mine, too. And you know what? It wasn't terrible. These are the books, folks, that the left wants in your school libraries and curricula. No, it's not banning. First, it may may be worth reminding people that child pornography defined in part as sexually explicit conduct involving a minor has no First Amendment protection. It's illegal. And books like this press the limits of that definition. Second, have we become so calloused and inured to the most extreme and graphic things that they have been defined down as nothing special to see here, nothing to be concerned about? In a famous line from Justice John Marshall Harlan in 1971, he wrote, quote, one man's lyric is another man's vulgarity. Really? Do we do that with reasonable doubt or any number of other things the law requires us to make judgments about? Try the phrase reckless disregard. Walter Burns had a smarter take on Harlan's relativism, writing, quote, it is a foolish statement at best. At worst, it's pernicious. For if Harlan is right, there is no such thing as vulgarity and therefore no reason to censor it. But by the same token, there is also no such thing as art and therefore no reason not to censor it. Third reason. The Supreme Court has weighed in on this issue of banning books in schools. The controlling case is called Board of Education versus PICO from 1982. There... Even the liberals like Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan wrote, quote, if a Democratic school board, large D, okay, Democratic Party, if a Democratic Party school board motivated by party affiliation ordered the removal of all books written by or in favor of Republicans, few would doubt that the order violated the constitutional rights of the students denied access to those books. An unconstitutional motivation would not be demonstrated If it were shown that petitioners had decided to remove the books at issue because those books were pervasively vulgar, if it's a matter of education suitability, it would not carry the danger of an official suppression of ideas and thus would not violate First Amendment rights. That's Thurgood Marshall. That's William Brennan, folks. So if the left really wants to push us on this, let's push this. Because that is exactly what they've been up to, banning things that are deemed conservative or Republican, to use the phraseology of Brennan and Marshall. And as Brennan and Marshall, and yes, the rest of the Supreme Court as well put it, educational suitability is a perfectly reasonable reason to keep a book out of schools. And it would not constitute a breach of the First Amendment or banning any more than not putting a calculus book or a Harry Jaffa book in the hands of kindergartners or first graders would be seen as appropriate. Age-appropriate and educational suitability are not political issues. Though, as I pointed out yesterday, to the left, everything is political. The personal is political, which is why you will find those arguing to have these books in schools too often come from people working out their own, shall we say, issues. But that's not what schools are for. That's not what education is for. Children should not be the foot soldiers for adult sexual and political angst. 
That is what fascist and communist movements do. End of day, Joe Camel was forbidden lest children become attracted to cigarettes. So is the aiming of tobacco advertising to children forbidden. Those who support such rules, like Crystal and Burns above, know darned well that language and imagery leads to or can lead to action, encouragement, and use. The entire ad industry, as well as the entire op-ed industry, knows this too. And they set out to protect children's lungs as a result. I just think it's a fairly sick society that thinks children's lungs are important, but their brains aren't, or their childhood. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Let's go to Louise in Scottsdale. Hello, Louise. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, how are you? Okay, fine, thank you. So what I wanted to speak about was Biden's issuance yesterday of two reports out of Health and Human Services, I think they both were. And, and this goes to your point about language. Yeah. So one of them is from this NCTSN, which is National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Yeah. But there is a, this is a, this is in the clock, this is in Fox News, it's in the article. Mm-hmm. This is a quote. There is no scientifically sound research showing negative impacts from, provi- from providing gender affirming care. <laughs> there and, is so much wrong with that sentence. <laughs> there is exactly. so much okay. wrong with that one sentence, Louise. <laughs> Read yes. it again, please. So I, I love the. I love the. My first when I got to no scientifically sound alarm bells went off. Okay, that's its but own then, problem. But the second part of the yes. sentence is even more. Read it again. Read it. Well, again. yes. Let's break it down. Okay. okay. There is no. There. There is no scientifically sound research. Right. Well, not to mention there is no research right. at all. Right. But, right. Okay. Right. But there's certainly no scientifically right. sound research showing negative impacts from providing gender affirming care. Gender and affirming care. Does it mention ages? No, no. No, it does not mention ages. Right. It doesn't but, mention but ages. It, and gender affirming care it, can mean a lot of different things. And it does. And in the article, they mentioned some of the things, and I will just read you another sentence since you bring that up. Okay. (laughs) Quote, it may include evidence-based, which, you know, what evidence is that? It may include evidence-based interventions such as puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones. Uh Okay. Uh So this old gender-affirming... So this thing we started basically a year ago has no sound scientific or has no sound scientific research uh, to to advise us on, right? Because it's, you know, this thing started about a year ago and there's no sound scientific research. Well, it started longer than that, but would you mind if I mentioned, if you mind, would you mind if I mentioned a different website? No, I don't care. Go ahead. Okay. One of the places where I read every day, is American Thinker. Uh And on the 29th, they had an article, um, Disney is no longer a child and parent-friendly corporation. But within that that article, was by Andrea Whitberg, within that article, there is a link to 
an interview that Michael Knowles had mm-hmm. with a, a woman named Helena Kirshner. Okay. And she was an 18-year-old who decided that she was going to really be a boy. Mm-hmm. And then later on, she detransitioned. Yeah. But it, it's... It, so she talks about, you know, how she got to that point. Mm-hmm. And what is the most disturbing part of that is when she talks about the medical care that she received over the course of this treatment mm-hmm. and and what happened when she had two hospitalizations because of apparently what the treatment did to her mm-hmm. okay and and the terrible medical malpractice that she you know she was afflicted with yeah so it's 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 probably about a half an hour long maybe okay so i mean so I think I've is, read something by this person, if not someone in a similar situation. Yeah, yeah, I think I read something. Yeah, okay, Substack, yeah, I think I read this. Okay, it's, it's sounding very familiar. Yeah. She mentions her Substack. Yeah, in, yeah, I think I read it in, there. In the interview. But, it, but it's just very interesting to hear how she got there and what happened to her as a result of this. Yeah. And, you know, it's... So it's just, she, she will get no say, interviews on CNN or MSNBC. Oh, no, 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 no. She but will, she will for be them disappeared. On the very same day, right, right. there is no scientifically sound research showing negative impacts. Yeah. 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 How about there's no negative impacts from eating, you know, Twinkies all day either? Uh, I mean, well, I mean, look, Louise, they they play these pseudo-sophisticated games, these intellectually pseudo-sophisticated games with language, and they throw a lot of a and, lot of fancy terminology. And that was exactly my point, yeah. because you brought up Joe Camel, yeah. which is a perfect example yeah, of this. Right, exactly. right, right. No, it, I, I, I think it is, too. I think it is, too. I, I'm just so befuddled by a movement that is um, close to militantly ardent about masking and vaccinating five-year-olds for a disease that will not affect them, but has no problem and will wrap itself in the name of no scientific research, in the phrase of no scientific research, with flooding their zone with sexual imagery and ideation. It's just a world that is upside down. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. But then you will enjoy the little video (laughs) that is within the Fox News Oh, will I? Article. Will I? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. it's, it's Joe Biden. Joe Biden talking about today as, and I forget what it is now. Yeah. No, I saw what he said. I saw what he said, and he talked about these bills as hateful bills. The administration is going after yes. these hateful bills. Yes, he did. Well, Indeed, he did. They're hateful only to the degree that you want to use children for your social experiments. That's what's hateful. And medical experiments yeah, also, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Okay. Social and medical. Couldn't agree more. Thank Nicely you. put, Louise. Have we met before? Thank Man, you. you and I are on the same exact no. page. Nice call. Thank no. you for contributing. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you in part by the good people of Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. I take it every single day, half for years, and it's kept me well for years. Since I've taken Balance of Nature, I used to get sick whenever the seasons change. That hasn't happened. Whole food nutrition, pure, potent plant power, 100% natural. 
100% natural. To feel better, protect your health, boost your immunity, 16 uh, whole fruits, 15 whole vegetables. You take it once a day in uh, in the in the easy-to-swallow capsules that they come in. If you don't like swallowing the vegetarian capsules, you can easily open them up and sprinkle the content into drink or onto the food. Um, a lot of people even just chew them as a snack. 100% whole food, gluten-free. No extracts or synthetics, third-party tested for any kinds of impurities, balanceofnature.com. Use discount code BALANCE. If you order it, make sure to use discount code BALANCE for the best deal. Everyone I've talked to and everyone who's told me they take it as a result of hearing me talk about it, they love it as much as I do. Okay, um, I have said before, I've just been speculating on air, we're, we're all kind of going through massive history up upheavals in real time here, social and historical upheavals in real time. So, you know, I, I speculate on air, and, and I don't know if I'll be right all the time about these speculations, but I kind of noticed a cultural trend and shift over the past uh, several weeks that the um, continual obsession with issues having to do with race has now yielded a lot, not a bit, but a lot issues having to do with uh, gender fluidity, sex, the transgender argument and debate. And it's almost as if um, those who supply the racist narrative in America are, um, are, feeling, um, are, are feeling left behind, are feeling, well, whatever happened to this cause? They haven't been taught that in the world of the crisis industrial complex, you only get a little bit of time and then we move on to the next thing. That having been said, uh, there are still a few uh, a few ebbs and flows to it that are left, a few hills and dales. And uh, leave it to uh, leave it to the Academy Awards and the uh, the the slap heard around the world, viewed around the world, to bring it back. We have a columnist at the Guardian who writes this: Most people agree that Will, Sla- Will Smith's slap shouldn't have happened. But there's something that feels precious at best and downright racist at worst about white people's reaction to the now infamous smack. The Hollywood director, Judge Apatow, declared in a deleted tweet that Smith, quote, could have killed Chris Rock, calling it pure out of control rage and violence, close quote. Apatow later confirmed he wasn't even watching the show when he made the remarks. I I don't know what's wrong with those remarks, by the way. I don't know why one would feel the need to delete them or why she needs to condemn him for that. She then writes, the radio host Howard Stern compared Smith to Donald Trump, while white women on Twitter somehow decided that Smith's actions meant he must be beating his wife. The comparison to Donald Trump is, is... just stupid on Howard Stern's part, and I don't see anything racist about it whatsoever. Uh, you know, how, uh, Howard Stern, I, I, don't, I haven't listened to him in an awfully long time, and I don't know quite what his views on race are, but that's not a racist statement comparing him to Donald Trump. It's an inapt analogy since Donald Trump has never physically stricken someone. That having been said... She writes, it would seem that there's a layer of hyperviolence that's being projected onto Smith simply because he's a black man who is defending his black wife. Hmm. Hmm. She writes, it's also not just about what Smith did. It's where he did it and who was watching. Anyone who has been following these shows can see that Smith is being held to a much stricter standard than white men who have behaved just as badly or even worse in those settings. She writes, 
1973, John Wayne had to be restrained by six security guards when he tried to rush, rush the stage and attack a Native American actor and activist, Sashin Littlefeather. Littlefeather was on stage to accept the Best Actor Award on behalf of Marlon Brando, who was boycotting the awards in protest of Hollywood's depictions of Native Americans. Almost none of that is correct. Almost none of what she wrote and I just read is correct. There's only two people that have ever said that about John Wayne in the 1973 awards, and it's never been confirmed anywhere else. One article in The New Yorker years ago, quoting no one, citing no one, and this writer, first of all. The other thing, Sashin was not an actress. She was an activist for the American Indian movement. And anyway, I could go on. And we'll return to it in a moment. I want to deal with another local issue coming up in just a few moments um, with a candidate running for uh, office, running for our county attorney's position. We talked with Brett Johnson yesterday about the role of the county attorney. This is a perfect segue to it. Annie Foster, candidate for county attorney, will be with us in just a few moments. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Many of you know the phrase, character is who you are when nobody's looking. And I kind of have a thought about that when it comes to the person I'm about to interview here, Annie Foster, candidate for Maricopa County Attorney. It's an addendum where I would say that public service and good citizenship character is who you are and what you do when you're not running for office, when you're not seeking the clink lights. I've seen Annie. Um, Annie Foster is that kind of public servant, constantly working on the issues that matter most to communities like ours, even when not politically expedient, always receptive to the needs of the community in her various jobs. And now she is running for public office. Annie Foster, welcome to the show. Hi, Seth. How are you? It's I'm great doing to, fine. Great to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, too, Annie. Uh, let me first give out your website uh, for people who may want to uh, look you up and uh, help you out. AnnieFoster.com, and Annie is spelled A-N-N-I, AnnieFoster.com. We had a mutual friend of ours on yesterday, Annie, in Brett Johnson, who was describing the job of Maricopa County attorney and what that all entails, how it's distinct from the attorney general, how we do it here in Maricopa County in the state of Arizona. That office is now open. You are running for it. Tell the audience uh, a little bit about yourself, why you want this job, and uh, why people should uh, look at you for that job. Absolutely. Thank you, Seth. Um, So I've been a law enforcement leader in the law enforcement community here in Arizona for um, many, many years now. Uh, My experience started back in, uh, you know, 2000 and Uh, Eight, working with the Department of Public Safety, who, you know, is the state police. For those that don't know, sometimes people aren't really sure what that agency does. Um, But that agency actually is a support agency for all other law enforcement agencies throughout the state. And so in my roles um, representing that agency, but also as the the chief of staff to the director for many years, uh, I was able to, you know, connect with all of those other law enforcement agencies and really understand the issues that were, um, you know, brought up throughout that time here in the state of Arizona, you know, issues about immigration and, um, you know, drug trafficking and human trafficking. So I really have a handle on the criminal justice side of things. I, during my time at DPS, I really was able to see cases all the way through from, you know, officers when they're developing 
reasonable suspicion and probable cause, you know, all the way through, you know, discovery and discovery interviews and you know, all the way to the end through a conviction. And then, you know, in the on the other side, um, since I've been at the governor's office, I've even been able to participate in those cases as uh, people have, you know, requested clemency from the governor and, and pardons from the governor, where you have to go back and you have to look at those cases and understand all of the procedural issues that happened yep. and, and was justice done. So on the criminal side, I've really got a lot of experience um, training law enforcement and just connection with that, that community. But the one thing that I bring to the job that no other candidate does is my work on the civil side. Mm. Because as Brett probably explained, you know, on the civil side, uh, the county attorney also represents the Board of Supervisors yep. and all of the county agencies, yep. like the, the Department of Health, um, you know, the assessor's office who deals with property taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so from that perspective, over the last five years that I've been in the governor's office, I've had connections with all of those agencies at the state level. So, um, you know, I am intimately involved in what's going on on, on the legal side on on those at those agencies. And, and that correlates directly with those agencies um, on the county level. So from that perspective, I just have this broad um, uh experience that no other candidate has. Um, I think you can, you know, absolutely be a prosecutor, and, and we've seen that in some of these um, past county attorneys that have held the role. Um, but I think you really need that, that broader depth of experience to really do a good job there and really turn the agency around, which is what they need right now. Yeah, you betcha. Thank you, Annie. We're talking to Annie Foster, candidate for Maricopa County Attorney. AnnieFoster.com is her website, A-N-N-I, AnnieFoster.com. Annie, um, all, all of that, let's hold just off for a second because I got to tell you, I, I was gobsmacked by something I saw the Democratic candidate running for this office say um, she was talking the other day on some other format, <laughs> another radio <laughs> show. And uh, what she was talking about how, is how she was not going to enforce certain laws, particularly about abortion, simply because she didn't believe in them. Is, is, is yes, this in any sense appropriate? Go, so talk to no, us about ab that. No, absolutely not. It is not appropriate. I mean, she, she used the term prosecutorial discretion, yeah. right? Prosecutorial discretion is a concept that is used by prosecutors, um, you know, as you're going through a case. And, and it's, it's about understanding whether you have enough evidence, you know, and, and, and how the case should be, you know, pr pursued um, after it's presented to you. Mm -hmm. You don't have an option as the county attorney's office to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get these cases. Mm -hmm. And if you do, your job is to uphold the Constitution and, and enforce the laws. Yes. That's what your job is to do. So, you know, the fact that she's already telling us that she is not going to enforce whatever laws she feels, um, I, I think it's it's a big problem. And, and it's a red flag that we should all be concerned about, because the next question is, is what other laws doesn't she um, want to enforce? Oh, that is the next question. And then the question after that is, what is her belief in the democratic processes in Arizona? I mean, do the voters get to have right, the laws right. they vote for, uh, you know, enacted, followed up on, prosecuted, defended? <laughs> and evidently, she thinks she can be in and of herself a super legislature. 
And well, I, and, and that's exactly right, right? The county attorney is an executive officer. Right. I mean, this is Civics 101. Yes. You know, yes. this this is what we've been talking about for the past few years. Laws have been passed to, you know, to teach our kids civics in schools. And this is exactly why we have government officials or people that want to be government officials who don't even understand these concepts. And right now, you know, what we need is we need a county that understands what the role of a county attorney is. It's an executive branch agency, which means your job is to enforce the law as written, not to make up your own stuff. And, you know, I, I just said this morning, I was like, you know, the last time I heard the term prosecutorial discretion kind of used this way, it was in the context of immigration. Yes, that didn't go so well. No, that's a great point. Isn't that what's brought us our failed immigration and border policy? The idea that we just wouldn't enforce the law because certain people didn't agree with it when they had the job to enforce it? Absolutely. That's exactly the problem. And and like I said, when you look at, you know, other prosecutors' offices throughout the country, you look at problems in, you know, cities like Seattle and Portland and uh, San Francisco, I'm going to tell you that some of those problems that we see in those cities – they all started off with lax enforcement right. in um, in prosecution offices. You know, people saying, oh, well, we're just going to give an easy plea deal over here, and, um, you know, we're not going to enforce the law. Well, if you don't have prosecutors upholding the law, then basically it's a snub to all of our law enforcement officers who are out on the street every day working their tails off to keep our communities and our streets safe. And uh, that's the job of a prosecutor is to take those cases look at them, understand if they meet, you know, the the burden of proof um, to be pursued. If they don't, then, you know, you need to have a conversation with law enforcement. But if they do, they should be pursued because the people of Arizona, the state legislature has passed these laws and they need to be enforced. If, if there's a conversation that needs to happen, happen about not enforcing laws, that's a policy discussion that needs to happen at the legislature. Yeah, that's right. Or or, or the people voting on them. But you mentioned California, exactly. right? You mentioned California. You think about those equivalents of your the job you're seeking, the district attorneys, whether it's in San Francisco, whether it's in Los Angeles. You see these district attorneys announcing broad swaths, broad areas of crime. They're just not going to enforce, particularly having to do with theft, particularly having to do with retail. And surprise, surprise, you get more of it. There is an effort to to Californianize Arizona, isn't there? A lot of it comes from a lot of outside money, and it's going to take people like you to stand in the way of all that, isn't it? It, it, it absolutely is, and I would actually say we don't even right now need to go as far as California for this. We can look at Pima County. Fair enough. Um, there's, there's been some issues recently in Pima County where the prosecutor down there said, I think um, the jails are too crowded, so I'm not going to prosecute these cases. Well, her job isn't to determine whether, you know, the jails are too crowded or not. Yes, you know, that might be an issue, but her job is to prosecute cases. And if there's an issue with, you know, the jails being overcrowded, that's a board of supervisors issue that needs to be dealt with. And um, she ultimately reversed course on that policy because it wasn't changing anything. And, um, you know, that that's where you need to look at why you're making the, the policy decisions you are. Um, if, if you're making policy decisions, right. you, you have to think about what the actual problem you're trying to solve is rather than, you know, creating a solution without understanding the problem first. Or, and, and, uh, and, and that's and, something. Yeah. 
no, go and ahead. that's something that I have some um, experience in working at the state. I mean, we would we are really careful about identifying what the problem is before we start going on some tangent yeah. trying to solve a problem that you know we might not we might be making something else worse. Absolutely, and not end running the people. Annie, this was a uh, short segment. I wanted to get you in. We'll have a long campaign. We'll have more visits. AnnieFoster.com. Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Annie, for doing this. Thank you for taking the positions you take. Godspeed to Thank you. Thank you so much, Seth. I would love to come back and talk to you more. And you will. Thank you, Annie. Great. Bye. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I, um, I was speculating yesterday based on something Steve Hayward wrote over at Powerline. We were talking a little bit about this, uh, what Steve Hayward called something like the uh, the, the the Democratic Dump Joe movement, uh, the Democratic Party's uh, buyer's remorse, and perhaps efforts to now uh, marginalize Joe Biden and perhaps uh, catalyze an effort to invoke the 25th Amendment or something to remove him from office. And it's a it's a it's an odd thing to speculate about because it seems like such an insuperable task. I want to talk a little bit more about it. A couple other people are picking up on it. My only concern, my only concern is Democrats aren't very good about getting rid of their own once they're in office. They're not even very good about getting rid of us when they're in office. The last scalp they really took was Richard Nixon's. The media can do a job. The media is trying to do a job. How much of the Democratic Party is behind it? We'll get into all that in a little bit, too. And Debbie Lesko coming right up. I'm Seth Liebson. Don't go away. We'll be right back.